Hello and welcome to Top in Tech. I am Conan Darcy. I am your regular host and I am the Senior Practice Director at Global Council. So Brussels, London and Washington DC are in recess. Things are quiet. You might imagine that we took a break from this podcast over August to reflect that. Not at all. It's an unusual episode this week, but we're going to press ahead nonetheless. Previously, we did an episode where we evaluated the year of tech under Biden and a year of tech under Brexit. At the time, we neglected the third B, Brussels. So today, we're going to make up for that, and we're going to review where the EU has got to in its tech regulation agenda. We're roughly, not quite, but roughly through halfway through the term in Brussels. We've got about 18 months left till Brussels shuts down for the European elections. So it's a good moment for us to have this discussion. I'm delighted, therefore, to have two colleagues from GC's Brussels office to help me talk us through it today. First, I'd like to introduce Anna Martinez, the Practice Director for EU Policy. Anna's going to talk us through the broader Brussels policy agenda and where digital policy fits in. I'd also like to introduce Max von Thun, a regular on this podcast. Max is an Associate Director for Tech, Media and Telecoms. Max is going to jump into the detail of where the EU's tech policy agenda has worked, where it's worked less well, and where there's a danger potentially that it might stall. So thank you both for joining. And Anna, I think I'd like to start with you and do that broader sort of headline sweep of what's sort of going on in Brussels, a little bit beyond tech policy, um, and then to sort of zoom in on what that all means for the discussions we have week in, week out uh, on the tech agenda. So on that note, could I just ask you to set out for listeners, what is at the top of the European Commission's intray as we look ahead to the second half of the year and then into 2023? So it's been an interesting term for the European Commission because they've had to rejuggle uh, their priorities. So in at the start of the term in 2019, the focus was on advancing the green and digital transition. And then we thought the pandemic was the only thing that was going to shift the priorities. At the end of last year, you know, the, the, the plan for 2022 was to focus also on the recovery from the, the pandemic. And we've seen that little by little countries were doing better to, to different degrees, but uh, the recovery was, was happening. And then the Ukraine war happened, which was the second development for this commission, for the von der Leyen commission, um, that they had to react to. And in a way, it really shifted priorities in Brussels. So today, what is really important is the energy and the food security, as well as inflation and uh, defense capabilities. And it's obvious that the relationship with Russia has drastically changed since the war, which means that discussion around strategic autonomy that was also uh, very much at the center of the Commission's agenda has become even more important. But perhaps also the meaning of that has changed. The green agenda is still key, but when we've spoken to people in the EU bubble our sense is very much that the priority is on getting through this winter. And if cutting corners when it comes to um, the green agenda will help get us there, that's what's going to happen in the short term. 
However, I like to think about this as a parenthesis of some sort, uh, because the Commission's overall ambition towards net zero is not going anywhere and will continue to be a long-term priority. It's an interesting example about how the best laid political plans can be driven off course by events. So where we had at the start, where the green agenda, the green transition was a headline policy for the EU institutions, for von der Leyen as the uh, commission president, we now find ourselves in a sort of slightly curious situation three and a half years in, whereby, as you say, we're cutting corners on the green agenda driven by the war in Ukraine. What was also interesting, Anna, and what you said was you didn't say much about tech. Now, you mentioned that digital policy, the digital transition was a big priority early on, but we're not hearing so much about that today. So should I and listeners draw the conclusion from what you said that digital policy has fallen very much down the pecking order in Brussels? I don't think that it's that digital policy has been forgotten because the commission will continue working in this area. In fact, if you have a look at the French uh, presidency of the Council of the EU and the Czech presidency of the Council of the EU, digital is actually a common denominator. Uh, But the truth is that there are more pressing issues that will need to be resolved. And when it comes to the energy crisis, for example, it's not something that can be solved from one day to the other. So this will remain at the core of what's going to happen in Brussels. So, you know, expect it to be on the agenda for, I would say, all of the European Council summits, uh, at at least until the end of the year, if not uh, also into 2023. And another point is that the commission president, as well as her commissioners, will want to be remembered for the role they played. So if you remember when the war hit, the question was, uh, uh, is the is Europe going to step up? Is the EU going to, uh, you know, beat what everyone thinks and uh, make sure that uh, it reacts in the way that Ukraine needs it to to, to react? And in certain ways, it's, the reaction of the Commission surprised many, and the reaction of leaders across member states. So I think that's what they want to make sure that they will be remembered in a positive way, of course, from for how they handled uh, this this situation. And particularly because, as, as you mentioned, um, you know, von der Leyen will want to be re-elected because uh, the term is, is finishing in 2024. The question that then follows is, if we're hearing less about digital policy, but it's appearing in European Council agendas and they're still talking about it, Do we read from that that we're going to see either less digital policy in general, or are we going to see a different type of digital policy from the European Commission? And if so, what what does that look like? I think it's more that it will be business as usual, uh, because I think um, there was a lot of the hard work that was done by the Commission between you know, at the start of the term between 2019 and 2021. So um, that was where the resources uh, focused on developing its thinking around the digital agenda. Uh, But that means that, you know, the basis is already there and the commission will now work 
on pushing through those reforms in detail. So in a way, it doesn't really matter that it's not the priority because the machinery is already working so well in that sense that it will continue moving ahead. Unlike with the green agenda, the digital agenda does not interfere with the commission's efforts to tackle, for example, the, the energy crisis. So I think that's that's an important difference between the, the green and digital uh, transition in, in, in this case. Okay, so for any uh, US tech company listening on the line, it's a slightly sobering message really to them. Any hope they may have had that the EU's pursuit of digital tech regulation was going to lay up and take a bit of a break is, is, is not quite the impression we're talking about. It's just sort of motoring ahead. The train left the station a while ago and it will continue to motor on. Max, can we just bring you in here and sort of internationalize the discussion a little bit? We've talked time and again about the EU-US tech agenda. It's that tension that's run through digital policy for the past decade. However, what we've seen in light of the Ukraine war, which Anna placed huge emphasis on in shaping digital and other priorities uh, within Brussels and within Europe more broadly, what we've seen with the Ukraine war is this reinvigorated West that is collaborating in a way that perhaps it hasn't done, at least publicly and symbolically, for several years. So what does what is your view, the updated view, we've talked about this before, but what is your view now on what this means? Are we going to see, in, I would take it in my view, greater cooperation, but the actual agreements are going to be relatively targeted? So export bans in hardware, for example, might be coordinated between the two sides. And ultimately, it's quite hard to see, isn't it, that the basic thrust of EU policy towards US tech and those big totemic pieces of legislation are really going to change that much. They're a bit of a, I think the EU institutions presumably see that as a bit of a side issue from from the Ukraine war. As you say, the Ukraine war has been a big driver of the relationship between the EU and the US over the past few months. I think we can expect that to continue given uh, there isn't an obvious end to the war in sight. Uh, I think over time, the longer it drags on, you could see some fragmentation in that relationship as particularly in Europe, uh, some member states begin to tire of the impact of the sanctions. But but for now, it's, it's holding up pretty strong. Um, and it's not just Ukraine. There are other crises or situations that are bringing the two together. Think about the relationship with China. Think about the tensions in the Taiwan Strait. Think about the ongoing supply chain in semiconductors and other areas. Uh, Having said all that, a lot does also depend on the domestic picture in the US. So things have improved a lot under the Biden administration, but there are midterm elections coming up in the US where he could lose one or even both houses of Congress. That would already seriously limit his room for maneuver uh, in terms of his ability to implement policies that are agreed on through through EU-US discussions. And obviously, in 2024, if we do see the return of Trump as president or another Republican, uh, you would imagine that will also put a damper on collaboration. Um, but just looking at the digital side of things, 
I think, as you said earlier, I think we can expect the most concrete progress on areas that are clearly linked to national security, particularly in the context of the war. And that is what we've seen so far. So if you look at areas like export controls, uh, screening of foreign investment, particularly as it relates to China and Russia, we've seen progress there and we're, we're likely to see more in the coming months. I think that also applies to investment applies to investment in supply chains. And the main forum for that has been the Trade and Technology Council, which is a, a forum Forum that was set up between the EU and the US to drive collaboration, particularly on, on tax. So that's, I think, what we'll see the most going on. Having said all that, as you alluded to, I don't think the EU will hesitate to push forward the aspects of its digital agenda that are not necessarily conducive to US interests. I'm particularly thinking of big pieces of platform regulation, like the Digital Markets Act, which introduces new competition rules for the likes of Facebook and, and Amazon and the Digital Services Act, which sets new EU-wide rules for how content is, is regulated, again, with a big focus on on big platforms uh, and which the US isn't necessarily a fan of. So I, I think you know those will continue. But yeah, overall, we'll have to see how it pans out in the coming months. In some senses, reflecting there a little bit what what Anna was saying is it's business as usual. There is greater collaboration in certain areas, but ultimately the EU is pressing ahead with its digital agenda, regardless of the war in Ukraine and shifting priorities on both sides of the Atlantic. Anna, can I just conclude this section by just touching on the direct interaction between the tech sector and the war in Ukraine? Earlier in in the year, we had letters from Ukrainian ministers asking tech companies to pull out from Russia. We had moves uh, in the EU and elsewhere to stop RT and Sputnik from communicating and broadcasting both on television and online. Is there anything in particular that you see coming in the second half of the year that directly comes from that interrelation between the Ukraine war and expectations on tech companies to act in a certain way? I think you're very on point with that question and very right to ask that, Conor, because although digital policy might not be the focus, it's an area that could prompt a reaction at EU level, um, depending on how things evolve. And I'm thinking, for instance, on... Uh, cybersecurity, for example, uh, if there were a major cyber attack from Russia, which would affect more than one country, more than one member state, I think that would prompt a policy response. Uh, or if, for instance, uh, there would be a serious case of misinformation, which could um, backlash against tech companies, then there is this pressure uh, at EU level to renew scrutiny of these tech companies and their policies towards disinformation. And to be honest, it's not crazy to think that something like that would happen because to a certain extent, we're seeing more and more cases where countries have suffered cyber attacks. And here, for example, there's the, the, the case of Spain, uh, where the CESIC, which is the country's most prominent scientific organization, which is, by the way, part of the Ministry of Science and Innovation, they suffered a cyber attack that left them without internet access for not less than two weeks. Um, and more recently, we've seen uh, a similar story in Estonia, 
where public institutions and private companies suffered also uh, cyber attacks. Um, and, and the government has said that this is actually the most ex extensive cyber attack since 2007. So indeed, this is something to be uh, kept in mind and, 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 and to keep in our, our radars as, as uh, the war continues. Okay, thanks. So just to summarize the discussion we've, we've just had now, tech policy is not quite as high up the EU policy agenda as it once was, and that is because of elements related to shifting priorities from both the pandemic, but then also the war in Ukraine. But business as usual is the phrase that really jumped out to me. It's still motoring ahead, and the EU's legisl legislative motor is still going, and companies and individuals need to be able to respond and react to that. It could still, however, be buffeted by events. So if there are major interactions between the war in Ukraine, whether disinformation or cybersecurity, then that could once again shift the profile and the dynamics within the tech sector and how it's treated in Brussels. So I think that's a good moment, uh, Max, to start thinking about that business as usual agenda. As I said at the start of the podcast, we're roughly halfway through the term of the European Commission. So it's a good moment for us to reflect on the priorities that the Commission had at the start of its term and the progress it has made subsequently in fulfilling those. So how about you could start, give us your view on where is it the Commission's made the most progress? Where, if it was a school report, would you say they're passing with flying colours? So we've talked a lot so far about digital falling down the pile to an extent in the Commission's entry. But actually, I think a big reason for that is how well the Commission has done in both publishing new proposals, but also getting them through the legislative process. And I think overall, it's been a pretty impressive few years in that sense. I think the most notable accomplishments would be the very quick, at least by Brussels standards, agreements that were reached on the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act, which I talked about previously, uh, which are really landmark pieces of, of platform regulation and the culmination of thinking in Brussels over many years about how you deal with the market power of large technology companies, how you uh, make sure that they deal with issues like disinformation and illegal content in the right way. But there have also been agreements on slightly less high-profile files, such as an agreement on a common charger for mobile phones and other devices across Europe. And in the context of cybersecurity, which we were just discussing, new uh, cybersecurity rules across the block. And then on top of that, while these st still have to go through the full legislative process, uh, we've also seen them put forward uh, ambitious proposals on lots of digital areas, including AI, data, platform work, uh, otherwise known as kind of the gig economy, um, CSAM, which stands for uh, child sexual abuse material, so proposals to crack down on that, semiconductors, uh, and we're expecting a couple more on the way on things including teleworking and uh, the right to repair, which will, which will also include uh, hardware. And while not a legislative achievement, I'd also bring up the major OECD agreement on corporation tax and kind of fair allocation of that, which the EU and EU member states was a big driver of. Um, so again, overall, I think a pretty impressive track record. I think on a more general level as well, 
the commission has succeeded in raising the the profile of digital issues and the urgency of what it calls the digital transition uh, and linking this to other aspects such as the COVID-19 pandemic and industrial policy and uh, linking it to other issues that people care about, such as Europe's autonomy and global competitiveness. And it's also done this in practical ways, such as in the big recovery package that it uh, agreed on during the COVID pandemic, making digital spending a big a big part of that. So yeah, overall, I think a pretty, pretty positive couple of years. Fine. So if we judge the commission on its own priorities at the start of the term, it has made significant progress. And I think that's a fair assessment. However, you did mention that there's quite a lot that has been proposed or that will still be proposed at a future date. And given we only have roughly 18 months, this sort of strikes me as quite a congested timetable for the EU's institutions to work their way through in that time period. So perhaps you could give us the flip side, the you know the negative, the cynical view. Uh, where is the commission in danger of failing? So I think I'd highlight a couple of areas uh, and potential, you might say, banana peels that the commission needs to be aware of. The first is on AI. So I mentioned there's a legislative proposal that the commission has published that's now going through the legislative process, uh, whereby the European Parliament and individual EU member states uh, in the Council of the EU are kind of looking at what the commission has said and staking out their own positions. Uh, And progress on that has been pretty slow. So when von der Leyen became president, she committed to, you know, uh, putting rules out there in 100 days, whereas it took actually about a year and a half to simply get the draft legislation on the table. And then the actual legislative negotiations have been too slow for a number of reasons, including the difficulty of defining something as nebulous as AI in actual law, disagreements on a very contentious issue of whether national authorities should be able to use facial recognition to track criminals, for example. So I think that's a potential area of danger. I think there's a similar picture on a, on another legislative proposal uh, that's live right now, the Platform Worker Directive, which is, in a nutshell, the Commission's attempt to uh, introduce EU-wide rules to strengthen the rights of people working in what's commonly known as the gig economy. And again, there there are very big differences between the different political groups in the European Parliament and also different member states on you know, really big picture questions like who should be considered an employee and who is who is a self-employed contractor? Uh, or to what extent does the EU have the right to set employment status and conditions uh, in its member states, an area where kind of national governments have typically been pretty defensive. Uh, so that's another area of risk. And I think one more I'd, I'd mention, which has generated quite a fierce debate in Brussels, is the CSAM proposal, which I mentioned earlier, the most contentious element of which is a new power the commission would give national authorities in in EU countries to, if they think there's a high risk of there being uh, child sexual abuse content on a particular digital platform, they could basically submit orders to platforms to actually scan communications, including private encrypted communications for that content. And despite Kind of every, you know, everyone agrees that we want to crack down on CSAM content online, but it has led to big backlash from uh, privacy campaigners, privacy regulators, as well as individual member states, most notably Germany, which which could potentially torpedo the entire proposal. Um, so I think I think there are a couple of areas where the Commission will be will will be worried and where it will face a struggle to to get its proposals through, at least in the way that it it wanted to to start with. So in short, we need to watch this space. 
the glowing report you gave in the answer to the first question has an asterisk against it. There's quite a lot that could get choppy for the commission in the second half of its term. I think the platform workers directive is a very interesting one. Anyone who has followed EU employment policy over the past decade or two will know that it is marked by this tension between the European Commission and the European Parliament, who tend to try and push for EU-wide rules in employment, and EU member states, the national governments, who jealously guard their national practices, which are highly divergent across Europe, some countries having a social bargaining system where the role of trade unions and business groups are well entrenched in the formulation of employment policy, and you have others where there is a much more free market approach to how employment policy is governed. And in a strange sort of uh, a weird alliance, they can often come together to, while they don't agree on the substance, to agree that they don't want the EU setting those rules rather than themselves. So one to watch, I'd say there. So the other point that we haven't really touched on, Max, here is that actually we're only really discussing here half of the equation. EU legislation, getting it into the statute book, is only so effective as you make it in the end. And we've got the experience of the General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR, where the EU has spent the last few years slapping itself on the back saying, hey, we created a global standard. Look, even even the Americans are are copying us. But actually, the results on a day-to-day basis have actually been quite disappointing. And the implementation of the GDPR by national data protection authorities has actually been judged pretty much by consensus, to be a bit of a failure. So you talked earlier about the Digital Services Act, the Digital Markets Act. I think you called them something like a landmark uh, piece of legislation. Well, if they're landmark pieces of legislation, do you think they'll also be landmark pieces of implementation? So since the DMA and DSA were agreed, there has very much been a clear shift in the debate around them in Brussels towards implementation and what's that, what that, what is that going to look like and how successful it's going to be. Um, I think it's worth going back quickly to the, the GDPR and um, the experience of implementation that we've seen there. Um, I think beyond the general difficulty of trying to apply privacy rules across 27 member states and to millions of companies. Um, There's been a specific issue with the GDPR in that it's actually national data protection regulators that are responsible for enforcing it uh, in relation to companies that are based on their territory. And what that has led to is certain national regulators, I'm thinking in particular of the Irish Data Protection Authority, being essentially uh, unable to enforce the regulation because of the amount of tech companies that are based in their jurisdiction. So think of uh, all the US Silicon Valley tech companies that have their uh, European headquarters in Dublin, including Meta and Google. Uh, And that's led to a lot of delays and investigations of those companies uh, and a lot of of criticism, both of the Irish Data Protection Authority, but more generally of this system that uh, devolves that power to national authorities. And so I think if we look at the context of the DMA and DSA, I think there are some reasons to think it'll be more successful in that sense. And I think the first reason is that both give the commission a much more prominent role in enforcement. 
in the case of the DMA, the commission is the sole enforcer of these these new competition rules, uh, these new obligations that the likes that gatekeeper platforms, likely to be Amazon, Meta, Alphabet, and others, will have to uh, follow in terms of their business practices, in terms of how they treat business users and customers. Um, the DSA uh, is not solely enforced by the commission, uh, but for very large online platforms, uh, otherwise known as VLOPs, the commission will lead on enforcement. Um, so that will address to an extent that issue of, of fragmentation and under-resourcing that we've seen with national authorities. Um, I think the other reason to be a bit more optimistic is that uh, both of those pieces of legislation in general are more targeted than the GDPR. Uh, their focus is in the DMA exclusively on big companies and in the DSA primarily on big tech companies, although with the DSA, the obligations do also apply to a wider set of companies, but at a at a lower level. Um, having said that, I think that means that actually where we've seen the debate on implementation focus is on the resources and the capacity of the commission. Uh, people have doubts about the commission's ability, particularly when it comes to technological, economic, and legal expertise, to uh, apply these huge and very ambitious rule books on huge globally mobile tech companies that have a lot of resources themselves to bear. And so people are worried about how that's going to pan out. The commission has been recruiting more people to try and address those concerns. Um, but I think it's going to be, I think it's not going to run as smoothly as the commission hopes. Um, although I think it's too early to say that it will be a failure. I think there's a couple of interesting points there that worth pointing out to listeners. One is this dynamic in EU policymaking whereby what you see are concepts and methods of working and methods of regulating applied to one sector. And then the Commission and the EU institutions look to borrow those and apply them to their own. So in this particular case, what I'm thinking about is the experience during the financial and eurozone crises, which ultimately ended up in the European Central Bank having direct supervision over large financial institutions, you can sort of see how that thinking has fed through into particularly the Digital Services Act and this idea of these very large online platforms being centrally regulated while others can be regulated by national authorities. The other thing I think that's just worth pointing out to anyone who thinks that the GDPR is currently a failure in how it is implemented is that there is an extremely strong chance that when the GDPR is revisited, which it almost inevitably will be under the next commission in 2024, that that question of implementation will be looked at very, very closely. And I would not be surprised if that more centralized model, which Max has just described, is also applied to privacy in the same way that it is going to be applied to content moderation in the DSA or antitrust competition issues in the DMA. Moving on, Anna, we've talked a lot about the legislation, but we haven't talked so much about the rhetoric that's been associated with the tech sector by this European Commission. And to be more specific, there was this big buzz term at the start of the mandate, and it's been present pretty much throughout. It was open strategic autonomy, very much associated with von der Leyen, with Commissioner Breton, and with France. For the supporters of this agenda, do you think they have reasons to be satisfied by how this concept has played out and how it has mirrored and matched the policy agenda which underlies it? You're absolutely right. I mean, open strategic autonomy in 2019 was what everyone was talking about. But it's funny, it's one of those terms that is 
very difficult to define when you think about it. What does it mean in practice? What does it mean for the different member states? You know, at the beginning, it was mostly uh, spoken about when it came to China and the US. And you mentioned France. Indeed, it's one of the countries that was championing this and taking the driver's seat um, on this at EU level, also during the, the presidency of the Council of the EU earlier this, this year. But like I say, it's, it's, it's difficult to measure how well uh, the Commission has done on this because the concept is so difficult to define. So it, it doesn't mean the same to the, to, to the different member states. Uh, and not all member states are as keen as France uh, to move towards greater sovereignty. Um, like I mentioned this at the very beginning of um, the, the, the podcast, but, you know, you can now also use the term to say, well, now the, the EU needs to become less dependent on, on Russian gas. Um, and at the beginning, it was more about the, you know, Washington, D.C. and Beijing. And it's part of the challenge when you're dealing with 27 member states. Uh, and I think we we kind of forget about this and um, we first need to make sure everyone's definition is the same. Um, but okay, if we take the broader the term of moving towards uh, becoming more autonomous, I think there is the will to move towards that to greater autonomy in certain policy areas. And, and that's still the case today. Uh, there has, for example, been progress when it comes to semiconductors. But the, the truth is also that on areas such as the cloud sector, the EU is unlikely to quickly be able to compete with others in the field, despite the fact that uh, there's commercial opportunities for European companies. So if we're, what, three years into roughly the term of this European Commission, and we still don't know what open strategic autonomy means, I think that's a pretty fundamental failure in political communications. Max, let's just wrap up here and just think again about European tech regulation and what it is trying to achieve and whether the Commission is fulfilling those goals. There's three basic things you could try and do, I think, in regulating in tech. The first is protect European consumers and users. The second is to clip the wings of foreign companies to assert more control or even open strategic autonomy on them. The third is to stimulate Europe's companies and Europe's own industrial and economic sector and innovation. Now, I would contend that we've talked about more of the first two today, and we haven't talked much about that third bucket of issues. So the final question I'd like to leave you with and leave listeners with is just to understand a little bit more closely, do we think the Commission's agenda here has done very much to help Europe develop a competitive tech sector that can take on the US, China, and other parts of the world? So I think to start with, I'd say that no one in Brussels would be particularly shocked or offended uh, when I say that the U US, sorry, the EU lags behind the US and China when it comes to having globally competitive 
tech giants. Obviously, there are a few honorable exceptions that come to mind, the likes of Spotify, SAP, uh, ASML, who are a leader in semiconductor making equipment, uh, Ericsson, who are a key player in the telecom supply chain. But overall, Europe doesn't have an at least for the time being, doesn't seem to be creating the companies that will shape the future of the digital economy, uh, particularly when it when you think of cutting-edge areas like the metaverse, AI, or big data. Um, having said that, there are some signs that this is beginning to change. So 2021 was a, actually a record year for levels of VC investment in Europe. You've got major VC funds like Sequoia and others opening offices in, in Europe and, and publicly putting a vote of confidence in the continent. And you're, we're getting the general sense that the ecosystem is becoming more sophisticated, deeper. You've got more serial entrepreneurs and angel investors who have been through the ride of creating companies and who are uh, you know going for round two and round three. So that does bode well for the future. Um, obviously, that will be t- tempered to a certain extent by the deteriorating economic picture we're seeing right now in terms of rising interest rates, inflation, potential recession, which are just generally uh, kind of tightening the environment for tech investment uh, and also and making investors more cautious about the types of bets that they're putting money into. So that, that's bad timing for Europe's tech scene. But I think there's also, you know, I'd like to close on a broader philosophical point, which is what, what Europe's ultimate ambitions here are, and you alluded to this in the beginning uh, when you talk through the kind of different objectives or, or goals that Europe can have. Because um, I think there's one part of, of Brussels and the Brussels bubble and, and you know, a certain group of member states whose priority is to have European tech champions, you know, European massive uh, European tech companies that can rival with the likes of Alibaba and Amazon and Meta. But then there's a, a sort of other picture, which is that sits quite awkwardly with a lot of other European goals, such as having a competitive market economy that isn't dominated by large companies or having effective rules on AI and privacy that in many ways may limit uh, the growth of, of, of tech companies. So I think there's a decision to be made about what sort of future Europe wants if it's, if it's, if it's ultimately okay with being a standard setter on regulation and not having these massive companies or whether it's willing to, to an extent, compromise on that regulation in order to play with the big boys. So thanks, Max. I think if we were to summarize the second half of this conversation, I think we would say the EU has undoubtedly progressed well and pushed forward its tech agenda. There's, it, it's hard to debate that point. It's clearly moved forward. And in pretty record-shaping time, they've pushed forward really landmark pieces of legislation. But there are these lingering questions of what it's all for. On open strategic autonomy, as Anna eloquently explained, we don't quite know what it is, um, even three years into the agenda. And if you just explained there, Max, we're not even quite sure whether this agenda helps Europe's tech sector and what the interplay is between EU regulation and how to stimulate the burgeoning digital economy in Europe. And finally, we're not even sure whether we need or even want large global tech champions. So there's a lot of questions still up in the air as we look towards the second half of the term. I suspect quite a lot of those will be unresolved and we'll be hearing those similar debates resurface as we look look towards the European elections and the new commission in 2024. We'll of course return 
to all of these questions throughout later podcasts to see whether some of the predictions and some of the analysis we've gone through today still holds true. So I'd just like to say thanks to Anna and like to say thanks to Max. That was a great discussion. And I just want to say thanks also to the listeners. Um, I, I say it at the end of every podcast we do, but if, but if you or your business or your investment are exposed to any of the tech policy developments talked through today, please don't hesitate to get in touch. Uh, you can find our contact details at Global Council's website at www.global-council.com, or you can find us via the link in the podcast notes. And thanks again, everyone, for joining us. Bye-bye.